There are currently about 195 countries in the world, and the United States has an embassy in 173 of them. These embassies are hubs for diplomats or ambassadors from peace treaties to trade agreements. Diplomats negotiate the terms which governments then enact. And diplomats are not supposed to insert their own will or opinions into foreign relations. They're to act completely with the interests of their home country in mind. And that's because they are representatives. They're there to represent fully the interests of their king or country. And because of this, what you think of another country is going to be reflected in what you think of their emissary. And if one country is trying to build strong ties with another country, and when their emissary comes to visit, they're going to roll out the red carpet for them. They'll be received with a bandstand reception at the airport, be wined and dined. And they're not doing this because they really like these diplomats as people. They're doing this because they want to show favor to the sending country. And it works in the opposite direction. That when relations deteriorate between countries, that animosity is first taken out on all the representatives. Remember back in early 2022, when the Taliban overtook Afghanistan and overtook the government, when that happened, the U.S. closed all Afghan embassies and consulates in the U.S. The U.S. was not going to have formal relations, uh, relations with the terrorist state. And that meant all these former Afghan diplomats in the country They were all given the boot. No more diplomatic immunity, no more funding. In fact, they had to leave. You get the point. It seems like since the dawn of civilization, countries have employed representatives to take their interests far and wide. And how you think of that country will be reflected in how you treat their representatives. It's a pretty straightforward point, and it's across the board from nations to families to businesses The way you regard a representative shows what you think of the sender. And this is true with the Christian faith as well. And the Lord's plan to reach the world. It was his design to do so through representatives. He took these disciples, he turned them into apostles. And the word apostle just means sent one. Their mission was to represent Christ to the world. Uh, Like Jesus said to them after the resurrection in John 20 verse 21, He said, as the Father has sent me, now I send you. And that principle holds true. How you regard Christ's representative says a lot about what you think about him. To accept or reject the testimony, especially of the apostles, is really to accept or reject Christ himself. But this doesn't actually just stop with the apostles, because every single disciple bears the name of Jesus yeah, the, the apostles are regarded as the most formal, most direct representatives of Christ. In fact, he used them to, to pen the New Testament. But you need to know that every single Christian takes the name of Christ, and because of that, you're, you're bearing his name. You're representing him to the world, one degree or another. Local churches are like embassies God has planted in a hostile land, and every single believer, every church member is made an ambassador of Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 5.20, bearing his name and his gospel to the world. Every Christian takes the name of Christ and will be his witness. Just by definition, the only question is, will you be a good one or a bad one? But the fact that we too are made representatives of Christ has many implications for our lives. And how we live before the world is a huge deal. We're showing them Christ with how we live. 
But that principle holds true that how people treat us really reflects on what they think of the Lord. We've learned all throughout Matthew 10, sometimes that's rejection. That we might encounter much opposition and hostility in the world. From the apostles on down, the Lord has given us an expectation of opposition if we're going to live for him in this age. We're not supposed to take it personally, though. It's how they treated him. It's how they'll treat us. It's for his name's sake. They're really rejecting the Lord. But thankfully, there is a positive side to this in that not everyone will reject us. Some will receive us. Some will accept us and our testimony and therefore our Lord. And it likewise holds true that those who show love for God's representatives really showing love for God himself, and they can expect his reward. It's on this positive note that the Lord Jesus chooses to end his second great message recorded in Matthew's gospel. That's our text for this morning, finishing up, finally, Matthew chapter 10. So go ahead now, take your Bibles, turn there, the last three verses, Matthew chapter 10. For many weeks, we've been studying through Matthew 10. This is the second of these five major discourses Matthew records for us. First, Sermon on the Mount. Here, the second one, Christ on Discipleship. You know, we're at the end here, so we can spend a little time just briefly looking back. How did this message begin? What, what's it all about? You know, so far, Jesus has called these 12 disciples, and they have mostly been observers. They're following Jesus around, learning from him. But he does all the ministry, all the teaching, all the preaching, all the healing. He does it all. They, they just watch. But while Jesus is the only Savior, it was always his intention to involve them in in his work, in the spread of his work. He aimed to use them to take his gospel to the ends of the earth. And so these disciples, which means those who learn, they're always meant to turn into apostles, those who are sent. And that transition begins right here in Matthew 10. So at the beginning of this chapter, we saw how Jesus delegated his power and authority to the 12, and for the first time, he sends them out to preach. You go preach. You go heal people. They're representing Christ and his kingdom, but before they go, he's got some instructions for them, and that's what this chapter is all about. It records the instructions Jesus gave the 12 and sending them out. We don't have time to run through the whole chapter again, but overall, Jesus really sets up an expectation of opposition for them. He says he's sending them out as sheep in the midst of wolves, that they will be hated by all for his name's sake. How the world treated him is how they will treat them, and that that wasn't very good. This is all true back then. It's still true today. But he says near the end, the true disciple will nevertheless accept this cost, knowing that gaining Christ is, is gaining everything, gaining eternal life. Jesus was himself hated, betrayed, killed first for our sake, the true disciple will readily accept whatever cost comes his way for the privilege of, of gaining the name of Christ. You know, this message, you look back at the whole thing, it's, it's heavy. But this is what comes with the territory of following Christ in this present evil age. But maybe in recognizing the weight of this message, Jesus ends on a positive note. That as heavy as this has been, not, not everyone will reject us or our message. God has his remnant. Some will receive us. And in receiving us, they're really receiving our Lord. That's because we really have been made his representatives. 
And so we come to see at the end here just how profoundly the Lord identifies with his people. And it's not just for the 12. It's true for all who follow him. In the last three verses, 40 through 42, he makes that clear. That the Lord wants all of his disciples to know from the apostles on down that he identifies with them. They are to represent him to the world to one degree or another. And these truths, in turn, have some grand implications we really need to consider. That's what we're going to do this morning. So let's go ahead and read this passage just to finish the chapter, Matthew 10, 40-42. Listen along. The ending of this second sermon. Christ says, verse 40, He who receives you, receives me. And he who receives me, receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet, shall receive a prophet's reward. He who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Now there should be one key word that jumped out at you in this passage, and it's used eight times in three verses. It's the word receive. It refers to accepting something being offered, and when it's used metaphorically, like receiving the word of God, receiving the kingdom of God, it's just talking about a wholehearted embrace or acceptance of that thing. And the same goes for receiving a representative. When you receive a a representative, it means you're, you're welcoming them with open arms, you're embracing them, and really the sender. With this in mind, Jesus calls out five different representatives, five groups, five representatives in this passage who all in one way or another represent God to the world. But then he connects these groups to some big implications as they represent God to the world, and that's what I want us to see. So it's a short passage, but it's actually bigger than you think. So let's go ahead and just identify these five representatives and the grand implications that follow simple as that. Let's identify these five representatives here at the end, and then the the grand implications that follow. And so the first would be the apostles. The first representatives he calls out at the end are the apostles. Beginning of verse 40, he just says, he who receives you receives me. You get the verb receive. What's the first object? It is you. Now he's talking to the 12 though, so he's talking about the apostles. They're the first representatives he mentions. Most of this message has been about those who will not receive them. Like back in verse 14, he says, as he sends them out, whoever does not receive you, same word, nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Now here at the end, Jesus is returning to the concept of their reception as his representatives go out, but it comes to the positive side. Like, there, there will be some people who receive you. But this comes with an implication he wants them to know, and he says, those who are receiving you, as you go out, they're really receiving me. He who receives you, receives me. And Jesus is communicating that he is fully identifying with his disciples, that they represent him. And it's a simple point, but it's, it's actually a big deal. It's worth some further consideration here. What does that mean for them to really represent Christ? And back in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, when Jesus initially called these disciples, he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. 
Now, Jesus could have easily done all the fishing himself. But his plan was to recruit these men to fish, to evangelize, to witness. He wanted to make them his instruments of salvation. He's a savior, but they will take the gospel far and wide. But who is adequate to become the Lord's fishermen, the Lord's instruments of salvation? Nobody. And certainly not these uneducated fishermen. But the Lord's power and promises would make them adequate. That's what I want you to see. So keep a finger in Matthew 10. Go to John 14. And then put a bookmark in John 14 because we'll be there several times. But John 14. I just want to show you a barrage of promises the Lord made to these disciples in the upper room on the night before his death. He was about to fully hand over the keys to these disciples. Everything he had prepared them for is coming to fruition now. He's about to die, resurrect, ascend, leave them. And so what we get here, though, in the upper room are these final promises for their ministry. They're about to take over. Just, Just a sampling here, John 14, verse 13. He says, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. He first gives them the promise of of prayer, the power of prayer, whatever they need. In accordance with his will, they got. All they have to do is pray. He will give them the the power they need for their work. He also has another gift in mind, verse 16. I will also ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. Jesus himself actually was their first paraclete or helper working alongside of them, but here he's promising to give them another helper, another of the same kind, the Holy Spirit, who will work within them. To do what? Well, one example comes in verse 26 at the end. He says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Their authority to lead and represent Christ comes through the word of Christ And the Spirit will enable them to speak that word and later for them to write that word. In all, Jesus is giving them the promise of of the triune fellowship. The triune God will be with them and in them. Verse 20, he says, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. It's what what a chain of communion, or really more so a chain of union. This is a big reveal that these apostles are actually not just representatives of Christ. Like companies have representatives. Like they've got a sales rep. They'll send them out to represent the interests of the company. But they're expendable. I mean, if they fail to perform, they just get fired. They're cut loose. They're no longer a representative. It's not how it works with Christ and his apostles. Because their relationship goes way beyond representation. They are united to him. Actually, it peeks into chapter 15. Jesus is the vine. They're the branches, and they abide in him. John 15, 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. The flip side is true. With him, you can do all things, as he abides in you. This is just a sampling of New Testament teaching, but you see here like the amazing level of solidarity Jesus has with his apostles. He's fully identifying with them, giving them his 
power, his spirit, his word, his authority. Why? That they now might take his name and gospel to the world. So keep that bookmark, John 14. Go back to Matthew 10. And when Jesus says, he who receives you receives me, like, he really means it. Like, at the deepest possible level, he means this. To receive the apostles is to receive Christ. To receive their testimony, to accept that, is to accept Christ. To reject their testimony, their words, like I said back in verse 14, is to reject Christ. And that's because they're united to him, and they're made to represent him at the highest possible level by his choosing, by his plan. And it's because of this very truth that we say, rightly, Christianity is an apostolic faith. It was the Savior's own strategy to invest everything in the 12. He just kind of pushed all their chips in their corner. This was his fruit from his earthly ministry. But he, he planned for them to carry on the work after he was gone. He did the work of atonement. It's something only he could do as the God-man. Only he could die on the cross to pay for our sins and actually redeem us. But they would do the work of taking that message of salvation. And remember, God's power is in that gospel. They would take that to the ends of the earth. And in this work, the apostles really are first and foremost. They were delegated the highest authority. They represent Christ to the highest degree being entrusted with the Spirit of God, the Lord even used them to write the Word of God with the coming of the Christ. We call that the New Testament. And so it's only right then to receive this testimony, not as the Word of men, but the Word of God. That's actually what Paul says. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 2.13. He tells them, for this reason, we, we thank God that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. This explains why after Pentecost, when the church begins, all these new believers, what are they doing? Acts 2.42, they're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Like, well, you don't care about the Lord anymore? What happened to the Lord's teaching? But you realize it's the same thing. The apostles' teaching is the Lord's teaching. He gave them his word. Likewise, Paul later, in talking about the origin of the church, Ephesians 2.20, says Christ is the cornerstone, but the foundation is the apostles. And so in our text, the apostles are the first and foremost representatives of Christ called out. And their representation comes with this massive implication that to accept or reject their testimony is to accept or reject Christ himself. And really, an application of this for today, the apostles are gone, we are not apostles. But the big application of this is that every Christian must accept the entire New Testament as the Word of God. What is this thing we call the New Testament? I mean, think about it, it's the lasting testimony of the apostles and those with apostolic authority. Amazingly, Jesus the Savior wrote nothing down himself. This is all their word. But we understand here that the words of his apostles are on par with the words of Jesus. The, the, the red letters in your Bible are not more important or more inspired than the black letters. This is not because the apostles are on par with Jesus. They're not even close. But writing as his highest representatives filled with his spirit, God ensured that their words were his words. 
This is the, the dual authorship of the scriptures, and this is why we accept all scripture as the word of Christ, the mind of Christ. This is all God's word. And so here's one practical example of this. The next time you hear someone discussing the sexual revolution, and someone claiming to be a Christian makes the argument that, you know, Christianity can accept homosexuality and transgenderism because Jesus himself never condemned homosexuality. Yeah, that, I mean, that, that crazy guy Paul had some hard things to say about homosexuality, but the words homosexuality is sin, they never came from the mouth of Jesus. Just read the Gospels, you won't find it. So the next time you hear that, and I hear that argument all the time, you should know enough now to reject that person as completely misguided at best or a false teacher at worst. It's just an echo of that evergreen Marcionite heresy, which is all about just picking and choosing which words of Jesus and the apostles do we want to accept. Let's pick and choose. But we see here that there's no picking and choosing. From the Gospels, the words of Christ, to everything else, the epistles, the words of his apostles, it's all in equal authority because Christ is represented most in his apostles. This is a truth we probably take for granted, but it's not a small conclusion. That Christ wrote nothing down, but we have fully his word we are meant to accept because he's represented most in these apostles. Now, let's go on to the second representative and its implications. Back to Matthew 10.40. It's Jesus. Jesus himself. The second representative is Jesus. Look at verse 40. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. There's a new object in the second half of verse 40, he who receives me. He's obviously talking about himself. Jesus is the second representative. Those who receive the apostles receive him, and in turn, those who receive him receive the one, he says, who sent him. You have to remember, Jesus himself was the first sent one. Again, the word apostle just means sent one. And so it's not surprising in verse 40, he says, he who sent me, the verb for sent is apostello, same word. Jesus, he's the chief shepherd, right? He's also really the chief apostle. He's the first sent one. And he was sent by whom? Should be a no-brainer, by God the Father. That, that's another, though, huge truth not to be taken for granted. It really is a big deal. So let's, let's quickly establish how Jesus viewed himself as the representative of God the Father and all it means. So for the sake of simplicity, let's just go back to John 14. So kept that bookmark. Should be easy. John 14. Still in the upper room, and, and not only did he have much to say about the apostles representing him, he had a lot to say about how he came to represent the Father. So you know John 14, verse 6, where he said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. No one even has access to the Father except through Christ. He's the gateway, the door. Faith in Christ is the only way to God. Look how that passage continues, verse 7. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. It is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? 
really is an amazing statement when you stop and think about it. This would be utter blasphemy if Jesus was not the Son of God. I mean, God is spirit. He has no image or form. He can't be seen. But Jesus came down as God incarnate, taking on human flesh, that the unseen God might be fully known. It's not showing us, here's what God actually looks like. He has no form. But this is what God is actually like. Jesus came to reveal the Father to us, that we might know God. So if you want to know God, the God of the universe, look no further than Jesus. He reveals him perfectly. He says in verse 10, Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. You see that Jesus is in the Father, and the Father is in him. It's a perfectly mutually abiding relationship. This is why Jesus could say elsewhere in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. But coming to earth incarnate, he came to reveal this God and his will to all of us. He says in John 6.38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And so we understand that Jesus came to earth to represent God. He was a representative. He came to represent the Father. But again, Jesus is no mere representative. You see that we've we've already seen the divine oneness between the Father and the Son. Jesus did not come to represent God like an angel. In the Old Testament, God sent out many angels as messengers or emissaries. But Jesus is not like that. That's not what he's claiming. He's claiming to represent God in the highest form because he is God in flesh. He is the exact representation of God's nature. No angel would say, John eight fifty eight, before Abraham was born, I am. He is the, the Yahweh God, the God of the Old Testament, come down in human form in the flesh. Okay, again, back to Matthew chapter 10. And just really consider what he's saying. And the implication, he says, he who receives you, or rather, he who receives me, receives him who sent me. And so as Jesus said in John 14, 6, really, no one comes to the Father but through him. He he really is the only way to God. The only way to be eternally reconciled to God is through Jesus. This is affirmed all over, that there's salvation in no one else but Christ. Acts 4.12, there is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved than Christ. You know, the, the two other Abrahamic religions, Islam and Judaism, they both believe in only one God. They're monotheistic, but they reject Christ. At least they reject the deity of Christ, that he is God's incarnate representative. And so they refuse to, to know God through his son Christ. And therefore, despite claiming to know the one God, They're cut off from God and his kingdom. And this goes for all who refuse to bow the knee to Jesus as Lord, Savior, God, man. You hear so many so-called spiritual people claiming that they believe in God. They probably say like they have their own special relationship with God. They know God on a deeper level. They don't need the Bible or religion. They just, they commune with God on another level. And through their personal spirituality, they're quite confident that their soul is fine. Their soul is secure with this God. But you should know, without a doubt, they're dead wrong. Their soul is in peril. And if they don't receive Christ, they don't receive God. 
That means they're still under his wrath. Like, it's not enough for you to win a debate against an atheist. You could fully convince him in the existence of God, but if he does not receive Christ, he hasn't received God. He's still lost. It's not enough to accept someone because they're conservative. They're a political ally. If he hasn't received Christ, he's still God's enemy. All must receive Christ to know God. Now you put it all together. Verse 40, just this one verse, it's actually quite a staggering verse. And you just carry the thoughts through. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. It reads simple, but it has massive implications for Christ and the church. Just think about this from the perspective of the apostles. They're going out on this first preaching mission. That mission would continue after the cross. And they are truly the flag bearers of the Christ. They fully represent his name, which means in turn that they represent the God of heaven. And just think of these, these lowly, no-name fishermen who, who otherwise would have been like instantly forgotten by history. They were used as the emissaries, the God of the universe. And God's plan is like no other. But this plan is not just for the apostles, the special guys. You know, in one sense, you would think, verse 40, this is the perfect ending. Just stop here. This would be the great place to end this message, this discourse of Christ in Matthew 10. He starts by sending the 12 out to preach, giving them instructions. Verse 40, he brings it back to the 12, letting them know, like, all right, guys, you represent me, so, so get out there. But he doesn't stop here because the apostles are not the only representatives of this Lord. If you remember, throughout this whole chapter, we've seen how the Lord's instructions were, on purpose, meant to reach beyond this first little mission trip. They're meant to provide guidance for all of his future disciples. All disciples will encounter some degree of opposition in this world because all disciples bear the name of Christ. And it's because of this, I believe he adds verses 41 through 42. He's going to call out three more groups of representatives. They have their own big implications. But it all goes together, so we're going to treat these back to back to back, all in one point. And so we can say number three, the prophets, the righteous, and the little ones. Verses 41 through 42. The next three groups, the prophets, the righteous, and the little ones. The last three groups of representatives he calls out. But they all go together. We get that the apostles are in a class of their own as special representatives of Christ, even the risen Christ. But are they the only ones made to represent him? No. Look again at verse 41. He goes right after. He doesn't stop. But he says, He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. He who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. Kind of interesting saying. You have two identical sayings. The only difference is the object, a prophet versus a righteous man. But you do a little Bible study, you find those two terms are used in parallel often in Matthew's gospel, a prophet and a righteous man. For example, Matthew 13, 17, Christ said of himself, I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it. He says in Matthew 23, 29, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets 
and adorn the monuments of the righteous. You see how these two terms are used in parallel often. There's really just one main distinguishing mark between the prophet and the righteous man. So who's the prophet? Prophets are those entrusted with the special revelation of God. They are themselves, you could say, righteous men, but they're set apart in that they've been given special revelation, the word of God for the people of God. This explains why elsewhere in the New Testament we find that the prophets actually join the apostles in significance. Ephesians 4.11, God gave some as apostles and prophets to guide the early church. And Ephesians 2.20, Christ is a cornerstone. He actually says the foundation are the apostles and the prophets. So prophets, you could say, is just coming with the, the special revelation of God. They are another class of Christ's representatives, special representatives. They represent Christ in word, the word he gives to them. And then these righteous men, in, in, the, in the next turn, you could say they represent Christ in deed. Who is the righteous man? In Matthew's gospel, to be righteous does not mean to be sinless. Righteousness is by faith, but the faithful will demonstrate their right standing with God by right living. And so righteousness in Matthew's gospel refers to those who just live in accordance with the will of God. They may not have the gift of prophecy, but they still represent the word of God through their lives, through how they live. And so together we have two more important classes of representatives of Christ, prophets and the righteous. And then Jesus makes a point about those who receive them. But notice carefully the wording. It's a little strange, right? It's not just he who receives a prophet or a righteous man, but he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet. He who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man, right? So what does that mean? In scripture, a name represents a person's character. So this phrase is talking about you receive a prophet precisely because he is a prophet. It speaks of those who welcome or accept a prophet or righteous man, not because they're, they're nice and friendly, not out of obligation or politeness, but precisely because he is a representative of Christ. That's why you're receiving them. Now, Franklin Graham, the son of Billy Graham, he heads up Samaritan's Purse, which is a ministry that does just a lot of philanthropy and mercy ministry all throughout the world. But because of that, you can imagine a lot of foreign organizations that are very happy to welcome him, to receive him. It's not necessarily because he's a preacher of the gospel or he represents the name of Christ, but because he comes with a lot of money and aid and gifts. The point is that's, that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about those who accept a man of God simply because he follows Christ. He represents Christ. And when you do that, you're really showing your acceptance of the sender. And who is the sender? Who's, who's behind the prophet and the righteous man? Who do they represent? The prophet in word, the righteous man in deed? I mean, obviously, they're, they're representing their master, Christ. And the result then, what is the result of the one who receives the prophet or righteous man? Christ says, reward. Now, this person shall receive the prophet's reward, the righteous man's reward. The substance of this reward is left undefined here, but it likely means that those who receive a prophet, they're going to receive the same reward that the prophet will receive for his faithful service. You know, over in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul speaks of the, the Bema seat judgment, uh, or Bema judgment seat of Christ. That's where 
Christ judges believers, not with respect to salvation, they're already justified, but with respect to faithfulness. And the faithful are rewarded accordingly. What's the reward? It's not defined. It could be rank in the kingdom, but we don't know. You might think though, that this doesn't sound fair, that you've got this prophet or righteous man, and, and they're doing so much for the Lord. And here's someone who comes along and receives them, maybe showing them hospitality, helping them on their travels, and they now get the same reward. But you need to remember that nothing about rewards is fair. It's all grace. It's the Lord's prerogative to reward his workers as he sees fit. We don't deserve anything from the Lord. Salvation is a grace gift, and so are these rewards. When God rewards his faithful servants, he's merely crowning his own achievements. Now, the implications of verse 41 abound. But before we get there, let's add verse 42, the third category. We've got the prophets, righteous men. He adds one more, these little ones. Verse 42. He says, And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Now, the last verse, Christ breaks this parallelism. We fully expect him to say that, He who receives a disciple in the name of a disciple, he shall receive a disciple's reward. That's that's actually what he means, but he he says it different for emphasis. He's talking about those who receive a disciple in the name of a disciple, meaning you're accepting this person because they follow Christ, and that's it. But here it's it's not any disciple of status. It's not a prophet. It's not an apostle. It's not a righteous man. This disciple is is a little one. Now you read that, you probably think he's talking about a child, but he's not. Not here. The adjective mikros means small, opposite of large. Sometimes it's used to talk about those who are physically small. We call them children. But it's often used to refer to those who are figuratively small, meaning the meek, the lowly, the the low ones. And given the context, this is all about receiving representatives of Christ. That is what he's talking about. These are the low ones. It's talking about Christians that they're not apostles, they're not prophets, they're not righteous men. It doesn't necessarily mean they're unrighteous. It's just talking about their status. They're low. They're of no estate. To the world, they're, they're nobodies. They're overlooked. These are believers who are insignificant and unimportant. They're just of a low rank. But still, you have a person who receives such a low disciple for the one fact that, well, he comes with the name of Christ. He follows Christ. And so how does this person show his acceptance of this low disciple? And here Jesus envisions just the smallest act of kindness. Give him a cup of water. In the hot Palestinian climate, giving water to a weary traveler was actually like the basic expected form of hospitality. This is not a monumental task. As one commentator said, it's like the smallest service to the smallest person. But that's the point. This is the smallest act showing acceptance or favor. But when it's done, simply because this other person follows Christ, even if they're of no name or reputation, but they're a fellow believer, Christ says it comes with great reward. And so Jesus says at the end, with further emphasis, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Just emphatically, that reward is secured. We wonder, how could such a small deed to such a small person, merit a reward. And there's only one explanation. 
And that's because even the least disciple still has the name of Christ, still bears the name of Christ, therefore still represents Christ. And so when another receives him in the name of Christ, he's effectively receiving Christ. He's effectively rendering service and love to Christ. John MacArthur has a great comment here saying, quote, In God's magnificent economy of grace, the least believer can share the blessings of the greatest, and no one's good work will go unrewarded. End quote. This is not the only time that, that Christ himself taught that acts of kindness to fellow Christians really being done unto him. We'll learn later in Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats judgment, where Christ sits as judge. And there he's seen as admitting believers into his kingdom. And he says, yeah, it's like, well, you know, you you gave me food. You gave me something to drink. When I was thirsty, you clothed me. You visited me in prison. And then it says this, Matthew 25, verse 37. It says, then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty? And give you something to drink. When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Verse 40 says, Then the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. It's just like Spurgeon said, Quote, what, what a great union exists between a king and his servants, end quote. And I think that really is what this text is all about here in Matthew 10. So we think now on these last few verses, they, they do have some grand implications when you meditate on them. And first, you really just need to see just how much Jesus identifies with his people. All of them, from the apostles on down to the least of these All believers are granted union with Christ by definition, every last one. This is what Paul would later call the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Colossians 1, 27. The fact that believers would not just associate with this Messiah or follow this Messiah, but rather be united to this Messiah. Nobody saw that coming. It's it's mind-blowing. In reality, though, union with Christ, it's actually the fountainhead of all of our salvation blessings. Us receiving the love of God comes just by nature of the fact that we are in his son. And to be united with Christ is the highest privilege to the world. We're nobodies. We might be rejected and hated as Matthew 10 foresees. But in the eyes of God, we are always loved and precious precisely because We're now knit to his son. We abide in Christ. He abides in us. We receive by faith. This is what what actually guarantees every promise of God to us. He can't break a promise to his son, his only son, and he can't break a promise to those attached to him. And Because of this union, another big implication emerges that we've seen in our text. All Christians really do represent Christ. From first to last, from an apostle, to the least of these, to one degree or another. If you know Christ by faith, you've been given his name, his spirit, his gospel, you may not be an apostle or a prophet, a missionary or a pastor, but just by definition, you still will reflect the name of Christ to the world around you. It's just the question is, is it going to be for better or for worse? And I would urge you to make it for the better. Like Christ said back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 16, 
Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You need to take care of how you live because the world is watching. And you, whether you like it or not, if you call yourself a Christian, you represent Christ to the world. You know how it goes. Think about all the unbelievers in your life. How do they make their judgments about Christianity and what it's all about? I have not met really any who spend their time reading the Bible that they're earnestly contending with the truth claims of Christianity. No, they make all their judgments about Christianity based on you, like how you live, the lives of Christians. And so represent Christ well in how you walk, how you talk. It's, it's a huge deal that we all need to take to heart. But I think if we could wrap up all the lessons from this text, I think we had to converge on the exhortation to love one another. Wouldn't you say that because all believers are united to Christ, we should love one another? Because how you treat fellow believers is how you treat Christ, we should love one another. Because you represent Christ to the world, we should probably love one another. I, I, I get the sense that everything Jesus intended with this closing, it, it feels like he turns it into a prayer in John 17. And since we've been Corresponding with the upper room, this is the perfect place to finish. So you can turn away from Matthew 10 and now go over to John 17. I think it's a good closing word, as there's so many parallels in the upper room discourse to what he's saying here. John 17 is known as Christ's high priestly prayer. It is his great intercession for his disciples in the moments before he's arrested. We're not going to read it all, but a few highlights. He says in John 17, verse 6. This is him all just praying to his father. He says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed that you sent me. See, first, Christ identifies that he came foremost to manifest the name of God to the world. He came first to represent God to the world, chiefly to these disciples, and it worked. Right? He passed on the word of God to them, and now he's passing on the name of God to them, that they can take it and run with it. They, they've understood this Jesus, he came from God. He came from the Father. He represents God. Now this Jesus, he's going back to the Father. So, verse 11, he says, I am no longer in the world. And yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. The name which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus says how he came in the name of God. He came to represent God. Now it's their name. It's their name now. And he's, he prays that they're kept in this name, they will be. He says that they may be one as God is one. We'll see that theme of unity come back. He says, verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Remember, he's praying for his disciples. And so like Jesus, they now bear the name of God. And like Jesus, they now 
sent forth and send out the word of God. His mantle to, to bear the name of God and, and the word of God, he passes to them. You now have the name of God. You're going to take the word of God. And because of that, just like Jesus, they're going to be hated by the world and by the devil. This sounds like Matthew 10. Sounds like what we were told to expect in Matthew 10 for taking the name and the word of God to the world. This is what you get when you represent Jesus. No need to fear. He's already prayed that they'll be kept by God. Their soul is secure. But he says, verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Set them apart. He says, verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. This is, this is the passing of the baton. Jesus sends them. These disciples are now apostles, sent ones. They're going to now take the name and the word of God to the world, just like he did. Now, so far in this prayer, it's been all about the 12, or you might say the 11. It's been about his original disciples. But here's where it takes a turn, because he has us in mind too, like literally you and me, everyone who would become a a disciple through their word. So look at verse 20. We'll finish up here. Verse 20, he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, the 12. He says, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. See how that all converges, all these thoughts converge in this prayer. Jesus is thinking of all future disciples who will be made Christians by the word of whom? Not the word of Christ, the word of the apostles. But it's the same thing. And the prayer is that they all would be one. Like how one are we talking about? Well, the oneness of the Trinity, the same oneness the Father, Son, and Spirit know, that's the level of oneness he wants to see in us. And the impact, even as we approach that level of unity and love for one another, that, that is what he says will we'll prove, will demonstrate to the world what? That God really sent the Christ, which is how they can receive union with the Father. They've got to go through the Son. They have to believe the Son has been sent by the Father, and that will come through our representation in love and unity. He continues, verse 23, I in them, you in me, that they may all be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me, and loved them, even as you have loved me. You see, again, it's not just the apostles who are united to Christ and therefore connected to the Father. Jesus prays this for all Christians. That includes you. If you're here this morning with faith in Christ, you've been united to him, the head, that has put you in union with the body, everyone else united to the head. We are one, and as we we experience it, as we pursue it, though we still have the flesh, It is to our joy, it is to our witness to this world. Now, throughout Matthew 10, we've learned how, as Christians, we are citizens of the age to come, but we're still left to live here below. Like Jesus said, we're not of the world, but I've left them in the world. We're left to live in this dark world, but God has purpose in that. Christ intends really to send all of us out as his witnesses of his name and his word, that this world might be reached. That's going to come with some opposition and rejection. The world, the devil, they'll hate us. But look, as we follow Christ and as we love one another, we really can make an impact in this world. We'll see God's remnant be saved. And in the end, we know that this world is not our home. 
He leaves us with the consolation that this Savior will take us where he is. Finish in verse 24. He says at the end, Father, I desire that they also, he's talking about all of us, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. That ending, that through Christ we receive the love of God, the same love the Father had for the Son we receive. I don't think we can appreciate that or understand that. But let us all recognize all that we have in Christ. Let us all live as those bound to him. And let all of us love one another as we are now the faithful ones to represent his name to the world. Let's pray to that end. Our Father who is in heaven, we we are able to pray that because of your Son, Christ. You are God, Father, judge. But because of this Savior, we will never know you as judge. We get to know you now as just not the Father, but our Father who is in heaven. United to you through your Son, Christ, your representative in the flesh whom you sent to save us. You sent this Savior, the sinless one, to die on that cross bearing the full weight of our sins to rise again, even to send back to you, yet to let his testimony be perpetual on this earth, that those who who come to him, who bow the knee, who recognize that you sent him, he is the Son of God, he is the Savior, those who who cling to him by faith will be saved. And what is this salvation, Lord? We've learned it's union with him. We actually get united to this Savior, made one with him, through which all of our salvation blessings come, our adoption a reconciliation, a redemption, all of it through the Son. And if you thank you for revealing yourself to us, it's all by your grace. And I pray, though, this morning we are inspired, convicted, challenged to now pick up the baton. You've left from the apostles now 2,000 years, a string of disciples left in this world to not live of it, but to remain in it and to bear your name and your word to the world that others might come to see the Father. They might come to see that the Father sent the Son, and receiving Him, they will receive you. It's, it's on us to be faithful. You will give us the power, the Spirit, all that we need, but press us to be faithful in this, how we live, how we walk and talk, how we conduct ourselves. The world is watching, and may we represent well the name of our Savior, Christ. It's in His name we pray.